HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. I'm Linda Palaccio, host of A Taste of the Past. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Here today, joined by Adam D. Tahani, restaurant designer to the stars. Um, it was great. I was lucky enough to moderate a panel at the CIA's Worlds of Flavor this year with you. And actually, um, it was fascinating because we didn't talk so much about the grandiose restaurant. We talked about the counter, uh, Omo Tanashi. Is that the correct term? The Japanese idea of that kind of service. That's correct. But now we get to talk about the bigger, more elaborate restaurants that you've done in your life. But I want to start um, in Transylvania, a place most people don't actually think exists. <laughs> Tell me about your upbringing, your Romanian heritage. Well, I, I uh, must say that I, I you know, have very foggy memories of Transylvania, you know, especially in the evening, in the winter evenings, where you know, the Carpathian Mountains are covered with fog. I, I, I was... Three years old when my parents uh, immigrated to Israel, so um, and but I did go back to visit in Transylvania, yeah. uh, I mean, one, one or two times, and you know it's 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 only popular in the United States, I think. You know, <laughs> uh, when people ask you where are you from, I said from Transylvania. They look at you. Uh, the first thing said Pennsylvania. I said no, Transylvania. <laughs> says ooh, Dracula. Yeah. <laughs> Um, that never happened to me any place on the planet except in the United States. So um, I, I really cannot speak much about uh, those early three years. It was way, way, way too long ago. See, I'm thinking of it from more of an architectural standpoint, you know, su- such Gothic architecture. Then you move to Jerusalem, which has, you know, from golden temples to just sprawling landscapes. Mm-hmm. Um, did you absorb that architecture as a, as a small child? 
Well, of course, uh, you cannot um, take Jerusalem out of your system. I mean, the, I think the most, the singular most important um, aspect of, of, or let's say, privilege of growing up in Jerusalem is the light. Uh, you become so um, enamored with, you know, the magic of light that um, no matter where you go and what you do after. Uh, it's all reflection of that beautiful golden hue of the evenings of Jerusalem. So I must say that, you know, part of my professional formation or maybe the ability to make people look good um, is Jerusalem light. Yeah. So taking that tint, you, you, you know, went through the Israeli army and then right after you finished, two days later, went off to Milan for school. That's correct. What kind of things did you study and see there? Um, I, I, if you don't mind, Michael, if I backtrack for yeah. a second, I mean, the the choice of going to Italy from, from Israel was sort of a, a um, let's say, a beshert, as we say in my country. I um, really had no idea what to expect, because I've never been out of Israel before. Uh, I grew up in Israel. I lived there most of my life. I went to the army, and um, the only thing I really wanted to do after the army is get out of Israel. And, you know, three years in the Israeli army with a six-day war and so on and so forth can do it to you. Uh, upbringing, background, I just needed space. I needed to breathe, and I needed to see the world. And the only schools that were accepting um, Israeli students at the time, I'm talking about 1969, where um, you didn't have to pay an arm and a leg. You didn't have to mortgage your life for it, and your, or your parents didn't have to mortgage their life for it. It was, was in Italy, strangely enough. And the two faculties that were open for Israeli students at the time was veterinary medicine in Bologna and architecture in Milan. And as I always said, you know, the only thing I knew about architecture at the time is that I did not want to be a veterinarian. <laughs> <laughs> so this is how I ended up in Italy. And back to the light situation, I, I landed in Milan in a dreary October day in 1969, and it was totally foggy. We couldn't see a thing. And, you know, coming from Jerusalem light into the dim atmosphere of fog was such a, an awakening. And I said, oh, my God, you know, the rest of the world has to live with this kind of light. It's terrible. I have to fix it. <laughs> so, I mean, what did you do to fix it? I know a lot of Italy as, as not the most, you know, um, extroverted uh, place, you know, beautiful interiors. But I'm thinking from a restaurant standpoint, sometimes you walk up to a trattoria and it doesn't have a sign. You, you don't necessarily know where you are or what it is. How did you bring light onto that element of Italy? Well, the, the um, formation or what I got out of Milan at the time. And Milan is, is a very different part of Italy. Uh, it's a very industrial and, uh, you know, circumspect and conservative. And, you know, it's, it's almost Switzerland more than it is Rome. Uh, 
what I got out of it was um, the beauty of art, the sense of style, the energy of the, the you know the people that that are creative the the will or the desire or the ability to interpret new ideas take them further uh, play around with new materials dare to do things that uh, in most places that I've been there was no such uh, enthusiasm and excitement and 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 creativity um, I think the beauty in the, in, in of Italy is is um, the fact that it's the, the, the made in Italy is not a product. It's a way of doing things. And um, the attitude, the, the, the class, the, the style that embodies all, all that people do um, is, is a very um, seductive aphrodisiac when you're a designer. You're, you're like uh, constantly tintillated by the possibilities. I mean, nobody says, oh, this cannot be done. First thing they say, okay, let's sit down and eat something and have <laughs> a little bit of wine and then figure out what we're going to do next. Well, it seems like you had everything you wanted, everything available to you in Italy. Why, why take such a romantic life and then try to open up a small studio in New York? Um, well... I think it has to do with the fact that every Israeli somewhere along the line wanted to be Alfred E. Newman or Hugh Hefner. Uh, <laughs> Which well, one did you want to be? Both. Yeah. <laughs> I wanted to live in America. <laughs> this was the land of opportunities. I mean, Italy for me was uh, a place that, that I learned how to be a man, um, how to appreciate beauty and all kinds of things. Uh, and but to practice it, uh, that was not the place I wanted to practice. I wanted to practice in the United States. I wanted to make it in New York because um, that's how I was brought up. I mean, if you make it here, you'll make it anywhere. So that was my dream. What was your first architectural impression of Manhattan, of skyscrapers, of the concrete <laughs> jungle? It was wow. I I will never forget the second my cab coming in from Kennedy Airport went through the tunnel and came up in Manhattan. My heart was beating. I, I, I started to sweat and I said, oh, my God, this is so hot. This is so amazing. It's so powerful. And and what, what really um, captured my my imagination immediately was the fact that Everybody was a stranger, and nobody was a stranger. I was, I was back in Israel. I mean, you know, living five years in Italy, you live in isolation. You live in, in, in a very xenophobic uh, city as Milan. You know, strangers and foreigners were very, very few. The city was extremely homogeneous. And even though I can pass it to, as an Italian any time of the day, uh, I still was always, oh, here is our Israeli friend. I was never one of them. I, the minute I got to New York, I was one of them. I, they were one of me. I was one of them. The buildings, the canyons, the atmosphere, the, the energy. I was just like completely bowled over. I, and, I, and I said to myself, this is my last stop. 
Uh, I'm talking about 1974. I'm still here, you know, 40 years later. And I feel excited every day going out in the streets of Manhattan. So I know you do a lot of hotels, but where did the restaurant aspect come in? It seems like that similar melting pot where everybody's known and unknown uh, is a very similar <laughs> culture to that of a restaurant. Well, I, I sort of got into the restaurant design business by, by coincidence. And, um, you know, when, when I first came to, to the United States, uh, you know, my background in Italy was very diverse. I, I, there was no work in architecture, even though I was studying architecture, uh, there was no real work. Uh, so all the architecture firms that I apprenticed at and worked in were doing a variety of other things. We're designing furniture, we're designing uh, interiors, we're doing exhibitions, we're doing uh, art, graphics. So that was my formation. I, I, my design education was a factotum. I was capable of doing anything. When I came to this country, um, people asked me, what do I design? And I said, well, you know, give me the problem. I give you a solution. That's what I design. And he said, no, 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 no. What do you do? Are you an interior designer? Are you an architect? Are you a graphic designer? Are you a furniture designer? I said, no, I do all of the above. So... Needless to say, um, I found myself starving for years because nobody was trusting me with anything in specific. They, they wanted me to put myself on a, in a certain niche to define myself, to say to the world, okay, this is Adam Tiani is such and such. And I kept resisting it because I, you know, I was Italian. You know, what, what am I, you know, I'm not going to, you know, give up so easily. Um, so, you know, f I struggled for years and, you know, until one fateful night when, um, somebody in, actually, I think it was at four o'clock in the morning in studio 54 in 1979, uh, asked me in, with a French accent, if I wanted to design a restaurant, <laughs> I said, sure, I'll design anything. You know, <laughs> I'm like, you know, are you kidding? I got to make a living. Turned out that the project was the original La Coupole. Uh, it was the first Grand Cafe in New York City. Had 250 seats. Was designed to the T by yours truly, who was given free hand because the owner was sort of absent. Uh, and I had the opportunity to do architecture, interiors, I did the furniture, I did the lighting, I did the graphics, I did the uniforms. I was Italian. I was doing everything I loved to do. So when the restaurant opened, it became a huge success in 1981. Um, Andy Warhol couldn't get in the first night, so it became even a bigger sensation. And I went out and bought a sign that said, Adam Tihani, restaurant designer. <laughs> And, and what I just told you is really the birth of the profession. I mean, nobody was calling himself restaurant, and I had no choice because I wanted to be Italian. I wanted to do everything I was doing in Italy, which I found in this microcosmos of restaurant design. Rest is history, you know. <laughs> the next, next thing, you know, somebody knocks on the door, oh, you design restaurants. I said, yes, of course, you know, that's what I do. So from one thing to the other, I sort of got stuck with that. 
reputation and that that niche. It's a good thing to get stuck with. Because from starting here in New York with La Coupole, you went on to work with people like Wolfgang Puck at Spago, uh, other places in New York like Ciro Maccioni. You, you rebranded or gave a rebirth to Le Cirque. Um, Danielle, Several times. Yeah. 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 <laughs> you know, Danielle Boulud, uh, Thomas Keller's Per Se, and Bouchon. Um, we're going to take a quick break, but we're not just going to be city-centric. We're, we're going to travel the globe a little bit and talk about Cape Town, South Africa, about Beverly Hills, and, and so much more. You've been listening to the Food Scene on Heritage Radio Network.org. We'll be right back. following program was brought to you by S. Wallace Edwards & Sons. Edwards Suriano hams are aged to perfection for no less than 400 days and hickory smoked to achieve a deep mahogany color. The Edwards name is well known for its world-class aged and cured meats. Their exclusive curing and aging recipe produces a unique flavor profile that enhances the quality characteristics of Berkshire pork. Optimum amounts of pure white fat marbling contribute to a flavor that's a delicate, perfect balance between sweet and salty. For more information, visit edwardsvaham.com. Hey, and welcome back to the Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here again today with Adam D. Tahani, a restaurant designer. You can actually say that now because it's printed on your business, you know, business card. <laughs> but you were also a restaurant tour a restaurant owner oh yes. with remy group for what 25 years that's correct how, how did you get uh, brought into that uh, well you know again like everything else in my life it's all coincidences you know that you, you can't say no um i i designed a couple of restaurants for um a, a gentleman by the name of dino de laurentis uh the famous italian movie producer and um, it, one of the, the spaces that I designed for him was something called DDL Food Show on the Upper West Side. It was at the, um, oh, an 81st in Columbus. You know, when, when that opened, it was still sort of a no-man land. You know, you were risking your life to go up there. But that was uh, an early version of Italy. Uh, way ahead of its time uh, when nobody understood what it means to go up to a bar and order an espresso and drink it standing up. I mean, there was nothing like that in New York. Um, but uh, what happened uh, in that space that I met a gentleman who was actually turning chickens in the rotisserie. It was a young Italian chef from Venice who was brought in by Dino. His name was Francesco Antonucci. And we struck a friendship, and we've been friends going out to dinner. He was cooking in my house and so on. So for years, and one day he says to me, you know, Adam, I I'm, think I'm ready to open my own restaurant. Would you help me design it? I said, sure, of course, you know, you're like my brother. 
So from one thing to the next, we found the space, and the investment wasn't that big. And you know, I said, okay, you know what? We'll bring in one more partner, you, me, and him. We'll open the restaurant. And next thing I know, uh, I find myself in the front of this dining room on uh, 79th Street between the first and second, um, greeting people and playing <laughs> maitre d' because Francesco was busy and we had a 500-square-foot kitchen. And he was so nervous that he even developed a stutter and he couldn't even talk to anybody. So I, somebody had to do it. And... Um, so for three years, I would finish what I do uh, in my studio at six in the evening, go uptown and open the restaurant with Francesco and close it at midnight. Um, this was back in 86. And believe it or not, there's still people on the Upper East Side when they see me and say, oh, Mr. Remy, how are you doing? You have <laughs> left the neighborhood. They have no clue of yeah. who I am and what I do. For them, I'm still the restaurateur Adam Tihani, which was... Quite a bit of an experience. Uh, did Did you feel like a maitre d at some of the other restaurants you designed? I mean, all the time. I feel, I'm in every restaurant I walk in. I feel like a yeah. maitre d, wanting to fix things and stuff. <laughs> but but I have to tell you, Michael, the 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 great thing that came out of this, besides the fact that uh, I used to work for twenty two hours a day, I you know it killed my marriage and whatnot. <laughs> but the great thing that came out of it is that. Uh, people started seeing me as a restaurateur. Uh, I, I absorbed all the punishments that I usually inflict on my clients on myself. Uh, I learned the hard way of what is a service station, of the correlation between the front and the back of the house, of the fact that if, if the two of them don't work in synergy, you can't create a good restaurant. So, you know, when I talk today with... My clients, uh, friends, chefs uh, such as uh, Thomas or Daniel Bolu or Jean George, I mean, they, they all of them used to eat in my restaurant. They knew me as a restaurateur as well as a designer. So they see me as a colleague, and the conversation is so much easier. I mean, because we get to focus on what really is important. I mean, they don't have to tell me how many service stations you need for 80 seats and where they should be located. I know that. Uh, every single person in my office used to have to work in the restaurant, you know, in any capacity every couple of months just to get the experience of what it means to actually practice what you preach. So it was an invaluable experience. Yeah, I mean, that's very New York-centric. You know, sometimes when you, you apply for a job here, it says, must have New York experience, which is right. a weird catch-22 because how can you have New York experience without ever being in New York before? But... <laughs> You, you've traveled the world, too. I mean, yes. you've, you've done projects in South Africa, in, in the King David Hotel in Jerusalem, mm -hmm. in Beverly Hills, the Jewel in Dallas. Mm -hmm. What ha uh, has those projects designed in places other than New York, you know, informed you of bringing back to New York and changing service here? Well, I, I think it's, it's actually uh, maybe the other way around. I mean, you know, all of the projects that you mentioned and many more are very site-specific. I mean, we, we are extremely uh, uh, proud of the fact that we, we go to huge lengths to try to learn uh, the, the, or understand the DNA of every place we work at and try to express that in, in design. Um, you know, we 
when we go to Cape Town, we portray Cape Town not as a local would see it, but as a visitor, you know, because we're designing hotels for visitors, not for locals. Um, so it's, it's important that um, you, you understand where you come from to know where you're going to. And you would be surprised to know that all of the world really looks up to, to New York. They look up to us. They say, oh, you come from New York. Well, you must know something that we don't know. I mean, this is the center of creativity. This is the center of ideas. We're so glad to be able to cooperate and collaborate with somebody that brings that type of knowledge to us. Now, maybe I misspoke by saying everybody wants to be in New York, but they, they are certainly look up for... Uh, inspiration and for you know ideas to us and when you travel when I go to Seoul Korea for example to design Western Chusan Hotel um, they said well we want a great uh, Korean steakhouse but uh, with a little bit of New York attitude <laughs> uh, who else who better than you to do this because you know what the New York Steakhouse is, and we, we, you know, we have great steaks in Korea, but we just want to add that little oomph. I said, really, you're going to, you know, hire Jewish waiters with attitude? <laughs> is that what you mean? <laughs> said, no, 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 but you know what I'm saying. So they, they, they really value uh, the international uh, perspective, and, and they, they are very excited about having somebody coming from New York or Brooklyn, for that matter, with that perspective. You know, uh, I find Thomas Keller an interesting case because you had worked with him in the past and then Per Se, Per Se was here in New York. But you so importantly said that, you know, you're, you're trying to show a vision, um, in a sense, paint a portrait of a, a person's food in a personal space. How did you do that with Per Se without compromising everything that Thomas Keller had done before? Well, you know, first you have to know that Thomas Keller was my student. That's how I met him. I was teaching a restaurant design at School of Visual Arts, and Thomas was moonlighting in my courses. And he was clearly the the, the older person in the room. And one day I, I went to him and said, you know, um, what are you doing here? He says, well, I'm, I'm you know, I want to know everything I, that, that there is to know about restaurant design. I said, Why? He says, well, because, you know, one day when I, I build my own restaurant, I want to be knowledgeable. Um, said, that's admirable. So I introduced myself and said, I'm Adam Tiani. He says, I'm Thomas Keller. And we became friends. And we've known each other for many, many years until before he came to me with the first Bouchon. Now, um, to answer your question, how do you translate a highly, you know, personal, residential-looking, um, let's say, inspirational restaurant from Napa Valley, um, beautiful little building with history into a fourth-floor um, steel and concrete and glass building in, in Manhattan without losing a beat. That was the challenge, right? Um well, you know, it's it's about perception. It's not about reality. You have to start with with the conviction 
that all we are doing is basically packaging a perception because most people have never been to the French Laundry. The ones that have been will never compare it to the one in New York to begin with because it's impossible. So how do we, how people in this city conceive a brand of hospitality led by Thomas Keller with his backlog of reputation and so on and so forth. And incidentally, he had quite a bit of experience in New York, if you recall. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so, again, it was about packaging a brand of hospitality and a perception. And if you go with that, um, you have to go through an interesting process, which I can't actually walk your listeners through because, you know, people pay me a lot of money to do this. <laughs> I don't want to give it out. But it's it's a process of how you have to imagine what people would think or what would they expect the brand of hospitality well, to be. I mean, it really all started at the door with Per Se. Um, Correct. There, there's an allusion to the French Laundry simply by the materials and colors that you chose. Correct. But the door doesn't open. The two sides panels slide open. So there is a little bit uh, a nod to Thomas uh, as a very humorous and funny guy, which most people don't think he is, but he actually is. I mean, if you consider some of his famous dishes and their names like, you know, oysters and pearls and all that, uh, it, it's so humorous uh that it's it's not even funny as they say yeah <laughs> but uh we, we had it, it to me it's a portrait portrait of a great artist uh in you know in an unfamiliar territory here and we had to create this custom outfit for him that is credible that has to do with an incredible sense of style and detail and and solid uh, gravitas you know um so you know i think it went well <laughs> i think i think it's going well <clears throat> yeah from what i've heard um you know to, to a lesser degree you know not not your own restaurants but any old restaurant Let, let's use here roberta's as an example um, I know most chefs walk into a restaurant and critique the food that's on their plate. As a designer, what are the first things that you see when you walk through a door of a restaurant? Um, I think uh, I, I uh, have a very trained eye to absorb a lot of details. <clears throat> but most people, uh, what I'm concerned about is not what I see. What I'm concerned about is what a normal person would see because that's our customer. Um, people have a very, uh, people have difficulties absorbing a lot. They can absorb one or two things very well. Uh, but a lot is, is quite difficult. It takes time and training. So the first, um, impression <clears throat> that captures your, uh, imagination and tells you, uh, a little bit about what the experience is going to be has to do with two things it has to do with light and with the smell sense of smell and um, that is not necessarily both not necessarily design I mean you your the light and smell give you the feeling of comfort <clears throat> when you and the third thing is really is, is the noise level so those are three uh, senses that 
dictate immediately in your subconscious what kind of experience are you going to have. And um, the second layer has to do with colors and materials. And, you know, I mean, if you walk into um, a restaurant that you've never been before, you just look inside, you see a beautiful flower arrangement, gorgeous chandeliers, a um, very elegant hostess with a great smile and a nice dress, uh, you wouldn't expect to have a hamburger on your table, if you know what I mean. This, all of these things um, dictate um, you know, a preconceived experience because we relate to our senses, to our memory, and to our memory of smell more than to anything else. It's an instinct almost. So, I mean, there must also be cultural, you know, um, things uh, within a cuisine that also inform, you know, what you want to see and what you want to smell at a restaurant. Of course. So, of some of those examples that, that you've designed around the world, how does the food pair with the functional design? The food, um, is, to me, is the main actor in the play. It's the main act. <clears throat> the um, a good restaurant consists of three uh, pillars of of um, you know let's say service, food, and atmosphere, which translates to design. Um, best restaurants usually have a very nice balance between these three. But um, in many instances, restaurants are heavy on service and food, and they're you know, light on, on the atmosphere. Some of them are very heavy on atmosphere. The food and the service are lacking. Some of them lack everything. Some of them have everything. But in different uh, times... Any one of these pillars assumes a different weight because the first impression that you have, if you don't know anything about the food, and obviously you don't know anything about the service because you've never eaten there, what will capture your imagination is the atmosphere, is the look, is the feel. Once you pass that, if the food is not good and the service is not good, it probably won't come back. I mean, take, for example, Roberta's. Your first impression, if you walk into this place, you know nothing about it. He says, I said, oh, my God, you know, what's going on here? <laughs> um, <clears throat> but then suddenly everything starts to fall into place because it's all cohesive. I mean, everything is relating to the next. The food here is exactly what you expect it to be here. You know, but it takes time for you to, to gel all these different, you know, uh, feelings and smells and sights and, and drawing conclusion that this is really a place that works. I want to ask a question. This may be a, a sad topic because I know what just recently happened. Um, your favorite, I've asked you this before, your favorite seat in any restaurant in the world was a standing reservation every Tuesday at 8 p.m. at 15 East. How yeah. many years have you been going there? Uh, since uh, Maso has been this uh, nine years, 
what was it like to sit in that seat? What kind of restaurant experience in totality was that? Well, I think that what what most uh, what's most important to me is consistency. Is the fact that I can come every week, sit in the same seat, and have the same experience. Now, you would think that for some people this is crazy. You know, they, they want every day another experience. Why would they? To me, the nuances of the of the you know the experience are what matters i mean i'm sure a lot of your listeners have seen uh the gary's sense of sushi movie where the master chef talks about 20 years of perfecting you know one piece of sushi uh, to me I, i'm when it comes to sushi this is how i, I am i mean i'm ordering the same piece of fish every week and the same seat most of the time at the same time and I'm see and I'm you know learning how it grows from one experience to the next and there are very micro differences but differences nevertheless the differences have to do a lot with me my mood and how do I feel at that time and not necessarily the actual sushi would have been absolutely perfect but Every week when the fish is flown in from Japan, is a little bit different. It's not the same piece of fish. So to me, the consistency of the experience was what mattered. So what are Tahani constants? What do you see in every one of your spaces? Um, first of all, I think comfort. I am particularly... Uh, sticky to making sure that the chairs are comfortable, the banquettes are comfortable. You can sit there for hours or minutes; doesn't matter. You, it's a well sense of well-being. I think uh, the second uh, element that adds to discomfort is the lighting. To me, everybody has to look fantastic and feel fantastic. You know. Long time ago, I, I designed nightclubs, and one of my clients uh, was this amazing Brazilian entrepreneur. Said to me, "When women look good, men spend money. Make sure you don't screw up the lighting." <laughs> and he was a hundred percent right. You know, when people look good, they feel good. So to me, the lighting and the comfort are a hallmark of what I do. And uh, now you have this whole other, you know. Uh, project, which is a sea, you know, a uh, seaborne, these ultra luxe <laughs> cruise liners. I mean, they're right. open air in a sense. You get to play with all the light that you want. They're open air during the day, but at nighttime, you know, it's black all around you. You know, you have to create your own atmosphere. I mean, you know, the success of good lighting, no matter whether you're at sea or in the air, or is controlled. It's a very simple thing. It's called dimmer. If you can control the lighting, you control the mood of the people. I mean, you take, you do a very stupid experiment. You just sit in a room full of light, and you dim the light. People starts to whisper. Why? Why? What happened? Why you can't you can't speak in a high voice when it's dark? Yeah, that's ingrained in us uh, during kindergarten. Yeah, but that yeah. but that's what I'm talking about. That's not the only thing ingrained in you. There's a lot of things that ingrained in you that you don't know of. And if I, as a designer, 
is not, not smart enough to take advantage, how can I control your experience? See, I thought all this time all I cared about was hooks at bars. <laughs> you know, when you look under there and there wasn't that hook to put a bag or a jacket, that was a complete design fail. But I, I know there are so many more elements. I didn't that. know that you, that you have. You walk around with handbags, my yeah, friend. Yeah, very nice. It's, it's a man purse, you know. <laughs> if, if your book wasn't so darn big, then mm -hmm. I would probably carry it around underneath my arms. But. Ah. I want to say thank you, and I want to say that everyone should go out and get this wonderful tome of a book. It's Tahani Iconic Hotel and Restaurant Interiors by Rizzoli, because there are these stories and so, so, so much more. And I can't wait to walk into my next Tahani Design restaurant. And I'm going to check for hooks this time, though. I'm going to make sure well, we, you we do, we do, We do put hooks, but in the bathroom. Excellent. Well, I won't spend too much time there. But you want to take your jacket when you're on the toilet. Yeah. There you have it. At least I know the lighting's going to be great. <laughs> well, I just wanted to thank our sponsor, Edwards VA Ham, uh, Jack and Maggie, for being in the studio. Cookies, as always, for the wonderful theme and break music. And, you know, check us out on iTunes. Download the podcast, and we'd love to hear from our listeners. Rate and review us. And next up is a little clip from Justin Warner. Uh, on Cherry Bear's show, um, talking about the laws of food. You've been listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. Hoping to have you back here next Tuesday at 3. Cheers. We determined that people want to know why and how of, of food. Not so much just instruction recipes. They, they want to get something and learn something. On episode 61 of All in the Industry, Justin Warner joins host Sherry Bayer to explain the secret principles behind his offbeat culinary creations. And so they said, you know, foie gras donut, for example. I mean, why on earth did you make that? It's, well, I mean, it's a long story, but um, I, I knew it would go together. I mean, it's kind of like a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And they're like, wait a minute. Peanut butter, you're telling me that a foie gras donut is a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. I said, yeah, I mean, so is pizza. They're like, what? <laughs> like, yeah, of course. Like, it's about fruit and fat and having some canvas to spread it on. I mean, the foie gras is fat. Peanut butter is fat. Cheese is fat. Uh, tomatoes are fruit. Jellies are fruit. PB&J, you know, foie gras donut. It, it's all there. Pizza. So I determined that the law of peanut butter and jelly is something that is true and something that exists and it is real. And if you have uh, fruit, fat, canvas, you'll be fine. Yeah, so like another law is uh, the coffee, cream, and sugar law, which is kind of the idea if you have something bitter, uh, add something creamy, add something sweet. Uh, or you could just say fatty and sweet. So, I mean, if you think about coffee uh, or raw chocolate, you know, cacao is, is bitter as all get out. Um, it's one of the bitterest things that there is. Uh, but the second you add sugar and milk to it, it becomes milk chocolate. So that's kind of... You know, just a simple example. But, you know, if you look at, like, bitter greens, most of the time people add some sort of oily, fatty component and something that's subtly sweet to it. I mean, that's what makes great greens. To hear more from Justin Warner and special guest photographer Daniel Krieger, check out episode 61 of All in the Industry with Sherry Bayer. For more great shows on the hospitality industry, you can listen to all the episodes of All in the Industry available on heritageradionetwork.org. This piece was brought to you by Fairway Market. Like no other market, fairwaymarket.com.